0: Discipline is God's tool for holiness. When God wants to make something holy, that is to to make it set apart, to make it pure, he uses the tool of discipline. And he does use that tool often, but he does not often use it directly in our lives. More often, he uses it through authoritative, divinely appointed authorities in our lives. And this is especially true when it comes to children. In God's wisdom and very good design, he has given children a father and a mother who would nurture them and bring them up in teaching. And while both parents are essential, the word of God teaches us that fathers have a sacred calling to represent God's discipline and instruction in the lives of their children. So this is not just a good idea, it's actually a divine mandate It's a sacred calling. It's a great honor and privilege, and it's a weighty responsibility. Ephesians 6 verse 4 is where we're going to this this morning, and it says it most clearly. It says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's often said that an individual's perception of Almighty Heavenly Father, their Heavenly Father of God, is actually framed and shaped by their experience of their earthly father. And I'm here to tell you that's no accident. That's actually intentional. That's part of God's good design. God has divinely appointed fathers to represent him and specifically his discipline and instruction to their children. Unfortunately, however, we've seen very easily and we see it all over the place what happens when sin Handicaps this good design when sin destroys what God has set out to do. We have people who struggle to trust in the promises of God because their earthly father didn't keep their promises. We have people struggling to see God as being kind and just because their dad was an inconsistent and angry man. We have people struggling to understand God's desire for a relationship with them because their father was absent. We have people believing that God is kind of casual with sin, he's pretty chill, because quite frankly, their earthly fathers have the spiritual depth and we're content with the spiritual depth of perhaps like a kiddie pool. We have problems. And most possibly, most damning of all, we have people, who week after week after week seek to earn God's favor, seek to find salvation by works because their dad's relationship to them depended entirely on good works and performance. I hope you feel the weight of this. And men, specifically fathers in the room, I hope you recognize and see from this the devastation that's left in our wake when we abandon our post, That I could affect my son or my daughter's view and relationship with God Almighty because of my actions. That is a huge, huge risk. It's also a huge, huge potential for reward. It would probably be much easier to preach this sermon in about 20 years uh, when I have about 20 or more years of experience and my kids are all adults and I don't have to be as engaged in it anymore, but I need this right now. I need this right now. I need God's word right now. Many of you know my wife and I are in the midst of raising four children, age two to seven. They're, they're a handful, they're a lot. And I need God's word. I need the gospel to inform my parenting right now. And I know that Chris Eelman doesn't have the answers. I have lots of ideas, but no answers really. God's word, though, has the answers. And I know that each father in the room, regardless of the age of your child, needs to hear what God is saying this morning because this is so important. So I encourage you to write this down. Write this down. Fathers, we have a sacred calling to represent God's discipline and instruction in the lives of our children. Now, when I hear that the weight immediately on my chest is the how question. Like, how am I possibly going to do this? How am I possibly going to represent him? How am I possibly going to overcome the way my own father shaped me or my culture? And you and I may be asking questions like, what does it even look like to be a representative of God's discipline? Or maybe you're saying, I'm not sure I've ever even seen that, or I'm not even sure I want to do that. I'm not sure I want to, or Maybe that I even should do that. Wherever the conversation is headed in your head right now, as you consider this statement, I want you to turn over to Ephesians 6. So fathers, we're called to represent God's discipline and instruction in the lives of our children. Early on in the the discipleship of my children, early on in my, my role as a parent, I memorized two verses of Scripture, Ephesians 6 verse 1 and Ephesians 6 verse 4. One of them I use all the time and one of them God convicts me by the Holy Spirit all the time. Ephesians 6 verse 1, it says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That's a beautiful gift from God, a one-liner that you can use as a parent all the time to point back to, I'm the authority here and this is right, this is good. But God in his grace and through the Holy Spirit always brings to mind and conviction, Ephesians 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a weight. That's a huge weight of responsibility. So we're going to dig into this one verse, verse 4, and answer the how question. And the very first word is going to answer a very big part of the how question, and it's this, fathers. Fathers. Fathers, it is your responsibility to set the culture of discipleship in the home. The discipleship and instruction of the Lord mentioned in verse 4 is actually tied directly to the Father. Now, unfortunately, several English translations have gone ahead and they have replaced the word Father with the word Parents. Even though, if you can dig back into the Greek text, it's very clearly the word Fathers. And if you were to look at Ephesians 6, verse 1, you would see he used the word Parents. It's a different word. He could have just replaced that word in 6, verse 4 and used the same word if he meant Parents. But he meant fathers. And to top that all off, when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus heard this, and the people of Ephesus would have undoubtedly heard him speaking fathers when they heard the roles and the responsibilities. And so, as a quick side note, and this is important for us, we don't get to just take scripture and make it mean whatever we want and just interpret it through our modern day lens and say, that's what we want it to say, that's more palatable. No, we take scripture, we understand, how did they understand it? How would the original recipients have heard that text? And then we apply it by extension to ourselves today. So this is very helpful. Let there be no confusion. It is the Father's responsibility before God to set the culture of discipleship in the home, to take the lead on this. When God said about to create this culture of creating holiness in his people, he decided to bring about it through a human agent, not through assembly lines, through human agents, human relationships, and primarily fathers, not primarily youth pastors, Christian schools, great Christian media. Those are helpful and they have their place, but it's fathers that he places this responsibility on. God chose you fathers for this task, and if he chose you, You can be assured that he will supply what you need to carry out that task. But it means an investment. It means an investment from you dads. And we don't get any of this bad theology about the sovereignty of God saying, well, God is sovereign, so he can do what he wants, even if I'm, you know, kind of not doing my job. That's junk. And fools appeal to the sovereignty of God for their own inaction. That's a foolish argument. God in his sovereignty, yes, can do anything. God in his sovereignty does not need you, but God in his sovereignty has chosen you. And I'm going to point back to this text and say, he's revealed right here what he wants. And what he wants is for you as fathers to do what he wants. He wants you, the chosen instrument of his discipline in your child's life. He wants you to take the responsibility for the developing, the culture of discipline in your home. And working on this may be an uphill battle, but reminding you, fathers, God is actually on your side in this battle. He wants it for you, and he will do it with you. You may have failed 100 times before, like me, but you, and you may want to skip this verse and say, it's too late, or my ship has sailed, it's too late, but I just want to urge you and encourage you in the Lord, Men of God, get back in the saddle. This is your responsibility. Satan's tactic is to get us to say, I'm not, it's not my job. It's not my job. I'm not qualified. But if you are a father, you are qualified and you're called. So I urge you, do not abandon your post. Now, certainly mothers are also called to discipline. And this is not a message, and this text is not in any way, shape, or form undermining the significant role that mothers bring in the discipleship of their children. Proverbs, if you read Proverbs from start to end, is completely full of accounts, again, pointing out to how mothers are to instruct their children and bring them up, how they have great wisdom and insight to offer. Ephesians 6 verse 1, children obey your parents in the Lord. It's not just speaking of fathers, but fathers and mothers. I believe God has created men and women complementary such that they bring things to the table, the other doesn't. And so wives are absolutely essential in, in raising children. But this passage of Scripture is key to understanding that the primary weight of responsibility lies on the father for creating the culture. They set the culture of discipline. Now, there may be mothers in the room, and I want to acknowledge this, that are in the unfortunate situation of having to disciple their children solo. They may have... Their husband have passed away, maybe in a situation of divorce. They may be in a position where their husband is not a believer in Jesus or is certainly not taking his role and responsibility seriously. And I just want to say to you that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. And your story is not doomed to failure because of an absentee dad. It's not doomed to failure. God's grace is sufficient. Timothy one of Paul's apprentices, one of these great heroes in the faith that we look to, can point directly back to his mother and his grandmother as primary disciple-makers. And so while the text today and the focus is on the fathers, you can take the principles of this passage and apply it to your situation. And God's grace is sufficient. So lean in and receive what God has for you this morning. Now, it's also probably a good moment to mention that I, I, I am aware that many of you in the room are not fathers, and perhaps not even parents. And so this may seem like a text that has very little relevance to you. But I want to again encourage you, this has relevance. And here's why. Because while you may not be a father, we have all had fathers. And that relationship to our father informs our relationship to our heavenly father. And so while this text may not inform your practical family relationships, it will inform your relationship with your Heavenly Father and how you relate to Him. So think on that. Lean in and listen. This is beneficial for you. It's also beneficial to take the principles and think about how they apply to your discipleship of others. But back to fathers, it's your responsibility to set the culture of discipleship in your home. And perhaps two of the greatest threats that I see in my life to this creating a culture is lack of time and lack of consistency. So we're going to go over to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. This records for us, Moses speaking to the people of Israel, God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. The people of Israel had just come out of slavery in Egypt and God is reorienting and retooling them. He's setting a culture, really, for his people of holiness and set-apartness, especially as they headed into the promised land. And this is what God says through Moses. He says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, there's much we can take out of that as we read that. But one thing, two things really that stand out to me are the amount of time invested in discipleship and the amount of consistency. This is not talking about a make sure you have a 7 a.m. devotion time with your family and then forget if God enters the picture for the rest of the day. It's not that, it's your discipleship with God leaking out in every area of your discipleship for your kids. It's you having the opportunity at the breakfast table to talk about the gospel, to talk about what it means to live as a Christian. It's about carrying on that same conversation, perhaps on your way to the grocery store, or on the way to school, or on the way to drop off friends, or on the way trick-or-treating last night. It's everywhere. It's in everything. It infects everything, and that creates a discipleship culture. And it can be as simple as, Just asking good questions. Asking questions. One of my favorite things to do with our kids right now, of course, they're younger, they're like two to seven, is just to ask them questions. And so as I, you know, maybe put them to bed at night, I might ask a question as simple as, tell me some of the Ten Commandments to kind of get God's law in their mind. Or it might be a value question, like I make up these fun value questions like, hey, would you rather have one good friend or like a whole truckload of Halloween candy? And they have to like wrestle through, oh, which one would I rather? And they usually say both. <laughs> I would like my friend to come with candy, right? We wrestle through these questions, but you get the, the question and it plants this thought. And it can be fun things. It can be easy, simple things. It doesn't have to be complicated. I like music and I play around on our piano a bit. And so we've made up little songs, little ditties off of the pro, some of the Proverbs. And one of my favorite ones is this one that goes, go to the ant you sluggard. Because it's like straight out of the Proverbs and it's hilarious to hear my like six-year-old or five and seven-year-old rather just singing to one another, go to the ant, you sluggard. It's great. And my wife puts up with it, I'm very grateful. But simple things like that can be opportunities to again shape them in the gospel culture, to discipline them well. For older kids, I know I was chatting with one of our elders and he was mentioning he loves movies and loves sitting with his kids and watching a movie. And then building into that experience a conversation about the values represented. Or a conversation about how the storyline actually borrows elements of the gospel story in that story. And it's a tool, again, for him to just create a discipleship culture. So there's tons of simple ways to integrate the communication of the gospel into our daily lives. But it requires time and it requires consistency. And probably every single parent in this room that's further along in the journey than me, when they've seen me with my my little kids, has told me, it goes so fast. So let me just reflect that back to all of us this morning. It goes so fast. Don't give up time now with your children. It's precious. Don't give up consistency now with your children. It's precious. And we want to spend that time for God's glory, creating a discipleship culture. As we consider the how question, how are we possibly as fathers going to create this discipleship? How are we going to represent God in his discipleship, discipline and instruction? We come to this realization, I'm a sinful guy, discipling and disciplining sinful children. (laughs) And so this is the second thing, Ephesians 6 verse 4 shows us, fathers, we must not discipline in a way that causes our children to sin. We must not discipline in a way that causes our children to sin. Look back at the text. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's, I probably said enough. You probably get the point. Don't push your kids' buttons, right? Getting them when they're just there and you're like, "Ah, anger, that's not right. That's not right. That's sinful tendency. And it can be simple and just happen in a moment. This happens to me often. It's when I make hasty discipline choices. And it could be, you know, I was sitting at dinner with our kids and there's a plate of food and they're not finishing the plate of food and hastily you speak and you're like, if you don't finish your food in the next 30 seconds, you don't get dessert. Well, I, I can't finish that plate of food in 30 seconds. That's not a reasonable request. And they blow up. And what did you expect? Of course they're going to blow up. I've just provoked my child to anger. I just tried to deal with this problem and I actually caused a much bigger problem than it needed to be because of my unreasonable words and I've made a mess of things. Now for you, it could be inconsistent standards. One day it's this, the next day it's this, and you have inconsistent standards. It might be careless discipline that quote-unquote, you know, shoots first, ask questions later, where you go in and discipline and then you realize the kid wasn't even wrong. They weren't even in the wrong. It could be favoritism, It could be asking a child to act 10 years older than they are and being completely unreasonable. At the end of the day, whatever it is, it's not loving and it's not helpful. And it's not helpful because it's not pushing our children to holiness. It's pushing our children to sin. To sin and angry. And you are not actually solving the issue. You might actually be causing a problem. You could think of it, one way I think of it, is like a boiling pot on the stove. The temperature is increasing. There's vapor coming off of it. There's hot water and that that burns and splashes and that's painful. And so there's a couple solutions. You can take that boiling pot of water and you can throw a lid on it and just tighten the lid down, but it's going to build pressure and it's going to blow. Or you can take the pot and you can remove it from the heat source. And that's the solution. It brings, that deals with the temperature inside. Now, similarly with our discipline, you can deal with symptoms and just attack the symptom. But if you haven't actually dealt with the heart of the issue, they're going to blow. And that actually might be a result of poor discipline, asking too much, trying to do something unreasonably. We've just actually addressed the symptoms and not the heart of the problem. And I'm going to tell you very seriously, if that pattern of just dealing with the symptom, not dealing with the heart, if that pattern persists, you can be in very real danger of pushing your child away from Christ. Becoming a stumbling block where they're actually led to sin more because of your poor representation of God's discipline. That's a very, very dangerous spot to be in. So Paul warns us against it. Don't provoke your children to anger. A parallel passage to Ephesians 6.4, a very similar one, is Colossians 3.21. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children Lest they become discouraged. It's very similar. Now, it could be because of personality that some, when they're provoked, turn to anger, some turn to discouragement. It could be that speaking about different situations, but either way, anger and discouragement, they don't push people to holiness. And so it's not a win for us. And on that note, I've noticed my kids, they're all different all different ages and stages and dispositions. And I found great, great benefit in talking and discussing with many of you that are further along in the parenting journey and, and discussing, hey, what's, what is you know, the best type of discipline for this type of kid? And trying to figure out, because I need to have my finger on the pulse of their heart to realize, am I actually causing them to sin more? Or am I actually pushing them to holiness and so thank you to many of you who have shared wisdom and insight. And I would just encourage you, if you're, you're struggling with one of your children, to, to spend time with other godly parents. Not forgetting to discipline, but we certainly don't want to discipline in a way that causes our children to sin. Now, we do need to pause and consider the reality that nobody likes discipline anyways. I don't like the feeling of discipline. Uh, and because of that, our children will often get angry and discouraged as a result of our discipline. Not because your discipline was wrong, not because it was unreasonable or too much, but because your children are children, right? They're children and their interpretation of discipline may be very skewed. So that's why it's so important that along with disciplining, we teach our children the reason for discipline. This is exactly what God the Father does for us. So we're going to turn over to Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. This is, if you've never read this passage of scripture, I just got to brace you for this. He's going to say some hard things that, if you really acknowledge them, are very difficult to hear. But it's so, so true, and it helps frame reality in a way that's so very helpful. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. The writer of Hebrews knows you can grow quite weary when you receive the Lord's discipline. Much like your kids will grow weary perhaps when they receive your discipline. But the the author of Hebrews is pointing back to you there's a reason for it. Listen to this For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Side note there, if you respect your children or if your children respect you, it'll be because of the discipline that you've given them. If you don't discipline, you will lose the respect of your children. Continuing on, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God tells us, don't be weary of discipline. It's coming. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a son, you will get disciplined, but don't get weary about it. It's a good thing. It actually proves you're a son. And so as an adult, as I, I can imagine every single person here this morning is not super interested in the feeling of discipline. You don't like it, but what it brings about is good and we need to warn our, each other that discipline's coming, and it's a good thing. And I even this past week, I was sitting down with a student in our, in our uh, youth ministry who's starting out in a new area of ministry. He's starting to serve, and I was just cautioning him, saying, as you start to serve, be ready for constructive feedback. Be ready for you know, leaders to speak in and say, you need to do it this way. Be ready for correction. And the reason I told him that is because if you aren't warned that there's going to be correction and training along the way, you'll receive it as personal attack when it happens. But if you know it's coming and you know it's for your good, you can take the personal attack side out and you're like, no, this is actually good. This is to sharpen me. This is to make me better. And that's God's discipline for us. And that's God's discipline for our children. So I just say that to you here this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be disciplined it will happen. It'll often actually happen through human authorities God's placed in your life, which is very challenging. But lean in to the discipline and learn what God has for you in that. And I'm just saying, it's a good thing. And so we prepare our children. We prepare our children by telling them, you will be disciplined. It's for your good. This is a really good thing. And if you lean into it and learn from it, it will be of great reward. Now, before we move on, I wanted to address one other thing, kind of a related issue that I believe is significant, having to do with anger. So while we talk about anger, some people have this, this notion that discipline of our children is only to happen in love and not in anger. You may have heard that before. I've heard that before. I would present to you that's a false dichotomy, kind of like the word love and anger can't go together and that they're mutually exclusive. That's not true. There is absolutely anger that is wrong. We know that. We, we've experienced that. That's what we're speaking against in that statement, I think. Selfish anger. When the kids do something that inconveniences me and I blow up, not because it's an offense against God, because it just inconveniences me. That kind of anger is not appropriate. There's also a need for self-control. If you have zero control in your anger, that's a problem. And you can't discipline in that state of mind because you won't discipline well. It'll be out of proportion. But there is anger that is righteous anger, and it's fueled by a desire for God's glory and the good of our children. Listen closely because this is so important. Anger can actually be a very good tool in our discipline. So anger is really just an expression of a value. If you value something and it's contradicted, you get angry. That's an expression of a value. The question we want to ask when we're disciplining is not, am I angry, but why am I angry? Now, nine times out of ten, until you're more sanctified like Jesus, where I'm not yet, nine times out of ten, the anger is going to be because of selfishness, because I was inconvenienced, because this is annoying, this is difficult, I don't want to have to deal with this. But there's an anger that's righteous, and we need to display that appropriately. We need to ask not, am I angry? But why are you angry? And is your anger in control? Is your anger in control? And is your discipline proportionate to the offense? Is it appropriate? So, example. An accidental bike handle scraping along the side of your vehicle, which has happened way too many times, that's not the same as your child blaspheming God's name. And you should not respond to those the same. In my humanness, the handlebar against the vehicle elicits my anger more than God's name blasphemed. That's a problem. And I realized a couple years ago, you know what? I have anger issues. Who, Who doesn't have anger issues? But my anger issues were different than I expected. I wasn't getting angry at the things that God gets angry about. That's a problem. That's a huge problem in our Christian culture today, not displaying anger. And we may have gotten raised telling you that, that anger is bad. Don't display anger. Anger is bad. Anger is bad if it's quick tempered anger, the Bible says. Stay away from a quick tempered man. If they can't, if they just fly off the handle like that, that's bad. Anger that is the anger of man, James tells us, doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. So, you know, selfish anger, that's not right. But Ephesians 4 says, in your sin or in your anger, do not sin. Presenting the idea, you can be angry, but don't sin in that. And I believe this is so important. If we're going to be representatives of God's discipline and instruction, we need to actually get angry about the things that God displays anger about. Because otherwise, we're not teaching values to our children that correspond with the values God has. Always in control. Always proportionate to the circumstance, to the the discipline. But representing God well. Obviously, you know that God loves you. If you've read your Bible at all. And God loves you so much that he will display great anger at sin. Because it not only destroys you, but it destroys your relationship with him and his holiness. So God displays perfect love and perfect wrath at the same time. If we're going to represent the discipline of the Lord to our children, then we better be tracking with God's value system. And please don't use this as some explana- or some uh, excuse to now blow up at your kids. You've misread me. You've misheard completely, if that's what you've heard. This brings us to our final point of the passage, Fathers represent the Lord in discipline and instruction. This is, this is substantial. Read the passage again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, at first glance, when I read that, I was kind of studying it. I'm thinking, okay, so fathers, you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to use, you know, the Lord's curriculum. It's like Christian discipline. That's what you're supposed to use. Like the, the discipline and instruction that belong to the Lord. But the way the audience would have heard this is actually different. And this shows the limitations of our English to Greek translations. So the word Lord, of the Lord, is actually in a case, it's called a subjective genitive, who cares? It's actually important. You can read it up. It means, though, that the Lord is actually the subject of the sentence, the one that's doing the discipline and instruction, but through a human agent, through the Father, So what this means, this has great significance for us. It's not just you as a father using God's curriculum. It's you as a father actually being a representative of God himself and his discipline in the lives of your children. God's doing it and he's doing it through you. That's huge. The weight of that is incredible. This is not a light thing. This makes total sense when you consider the fact that God has That our children are actually God's. They belong to God. They don't belong to me. I'm a steward, but they're his. God's distributed his children among us. And our calling as fathers is to be his vice regents or his representatives to act on his behalf. We got to be faithful. We have to bring them up to nurture them. But at the end of the day, it's actually God doing it through us. And so the real success is attributed to the Lord who is working through us. So if you've thought to yourself, as I'm talking about discipline and discipleship in the home, and you're like, I got this, I got this, then you have completely undermined or underestimated, rather, the significance of what you're called to. You're called to represent God the Father in the lives of your children, to represent his discipline and instruction. You need and rely entirely, like me, on the grace of God for that. Now we're going to turn back to the verse It says the word discipline and instruction. And again, discipline, it's the nuance of this word is a little bit bigger than just simply, you know, you're going to your room for a timeout or, you know, correction for the purpose of training. It's more than that. And especially to the Ephesians. So Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. This is a city on the coast of modern day Turkey. And if you Google search Ephesus, it's actually significant. It's so cool because all these remains, it's like one of the best preserved archaeology or archaeological remains. And you can actually see the, the stadium where Paul was causing a riot. And this is amazing to see. But the, the, the city of Ephesus is a major, major city in the Greco-Roman Empire. And it was very, very influenced by Greek thought. And so when they heard this word discipline, which is the Greek word paideia, This was a loaded term for them. This meant a lot more than it means to us. Paideia was this concept for them of the holistic development of the Greek citizen into the ideal citizen of the Greek world, where they could be holistically developed into a servant of the city-state. This this is perfect. So this was their aim in their, their education. They were aiming for paideia so that they could develop this ideal Human being that would be the, like the perfect Greek citizen and a servant of the state. That's kind of the idea behind this for them. So it was encapsulating emotional teaching, spiritual teaching, physical teaching, intellectual teaching, social teaching. And they had a great emphasis on virtue and developing character. So into this culture that it greatly esteems this ideal, Paul speaks and uses the same term but then says, of the Lord. So imagine as a Greek person or an Ephesian person who's now a believer in Jesus with this term in the background and you're like, I get it. We are now forming and shaped, we're called to form and shape our children after not some abstract ideal, but after the person of Jesus Christ. And the end goal is not for him him or her to be a servant of this city state, but to be a servant in the kingdom of God. So this translated for them very easily. And it's significant to us, because today we have an unspoken ideal that our community or our country or our culture communicates is important for your children to grow up into. So well adjusted, financially stable, to be, you know, socially producing, to be to be perhaps, you know, financially set, athletic, intellectual. Who knows? You set that, that ideal. But there's this ideal we're kind of shooting for. And God is saying to us, that's not the ideal we're going for. The ideal we're going for is the person of Jesus Christ. That's who we're to pattern our children after. And so it's remarkable that Jesus calls them, hey, bring them up in the discipline, in the, the paideia of the Lord. It's also remarkable to me, I don't know about you, but to see the mannerisms in kids that replicate, are replicated from their parents. You see a kid and one person, a friend of mine was just saying, like, your son is like a copy of you. He's just like a copy of you, right? And it's it's true. We see those things. If you meet me and then you meet my dad, you'll be like, oh, I see so many resemblances and similarities in the two of you. And that's, that's great and that's fine. Just realize that that is uh, going to translate from a lot more than just small mannerisms. That's going to translate from values. And I've seen in my own parenting, either this, I just mindlessly kind of adopt what has been done for me and I do it for my children, or I tend to just strongly react to what was done for me and I do it for my children differently. And God's calling us to something different than that. He's calling us to pattern our children after the ideal of Jesus Christ, after his paideia. Here, that's, that's what the Lord is calling us to. And it actually simplifies the task of discipling our children. So many of you know that I love organization and I love Excel. Excel is like one of my favorite programs. And so a couple of years ago, I started writing out in Excel all the things I wanted to teach my children. Like everything, down to the nuance. And I would write it all and I'd categorize it and it's like overwhelming. Just if you've ever, don't try it. It's it's overwhelming thinking about all the things you want to teach. And then you're like, I don't have time and resources to do this. And my parents were able to do this for me, but I can't do that for my kids. And you can come up feeling very inadequate to shape your person, your child, into the ideal of what even your ideal is for your children. And I realized, and I'm still realizing, that the best guideline for our children is not a list of ideals as much as it is the person and work of Jesus Christ, patterning them after that. Our hope is not in an exhaustive list, but Jesus Christ. So we're going to fail. Ouch. (laughs) We're going to fail. But if we've pointed them to Jesus Christ, they will have all that they need. They might not have all knowledge. But if they have Christ, they have a sure foundation of truth to build on. They might not be superstar athletes. But if they love Christ, they're they're going to honor the Lord with their bodies. They might not be part of every club and every group, but if they're part of Christ and his church, they're going to develop in character and in virtue. They might not see the whole world, but if they love and know Christ, they will love the people of the world no matter where God places them. Fathers, it's our responsibility to represent the discipline and instruction of the Lord in the lives of our children But let me close with this. There is a huge, huge risk. And that risk is this. So many men have gone before us and have failed in this area. Godly men. Heroes of the faith have done this. Eli failed miserably because of passivity. Samuel failed miserably because of negligence. King David, a man after God's own heart, failed miserably because he failed to rebuke his children. Isaac and Jacob failed miserably because they both played favorites with their kids. And so what's it going to be for us? We are going to fail at times, but by God's grace, let us represent the discipline and instruction of the Lord in the lives of our children well. I sense that some of you may have indeed given up, perhaps, on discipline. Perhaps you have a wayward child a child that's walked away from the Lord. And may I urge you in the Lord to redouble your efforts in praying and hoping for them. Should the prodigal child return home, may they not find us disinterested, watching TV, on vacation. May they find us prayerfully waiting for the first sign of repentance. Some of you perhaps are ready to give up, to toss in the towel. You've been trying to display faithful discipline to your children and it's exhausting and it's too much, may I just urge you in the Lord to continue on. Don't grow weary of well-doing. Some of you may have actually stopped. You may have given up already on discipline. You may have neglected that, afraid that you might lose your children. Can I urge you in the Lord to seek the counsel of godly wise men and to go and repent, to apologize to your children, and then to get back in the saddle. And some of you here, you're here today and you're being disciplined by your parents, (laughs) and it doesn't feel good. But can I urge you in the Lord, if you're being disciplined by your parents, you have a gracious gift from God, and they won't get it right all the time. But lean into their correction, and by God's grace you will grow. And finally, some of you here are doing well. You've been an example to others of your discipline and representing the Lord well. Praise God and let's continue on. Fathers, it's a calling for you. Watch that your discipline does not cause your children to sin and I pray that you would represent the Lord well.